Hi, it's David Poland. This is the hot button number 83, the 10 myths of streaming part one. As Disney's good but wildly overhyped quarterly fades from conversation, I keep hearing the repetition of a series of myths that just won't die. And really, for better or for worse, at this moment in the industry, these are at the core of my daily thoughts and conversations. When people come to believe something is true, when they feel it, releasing the idea is really, really hard. I get enraged by it. It's not a good look for me. I guess that they're telling people who buy into these false notions that they aren't actually evil, they're just suckers, isn't really a warm embrace that they will respond to well. One of my signatures is support for theatrical, but the truth is, ultimately, that destroying theatrical will not kill the film and television industry. It's a small part of the overall business and has been that way for decades already, long before streaming. But I will tell you this, and have a million times, when every one of these streamers is stuck at $40 billion to $50 billion a year in worldwide revenues each, that $40 billion in theatrical split five ways is going to look awfully nice. And it seems like even though they're intent on pissing it away, I don't know, I think they're going to miss it. So let's get to the myths. The first myth, you need to ramp up spending wildly to attract an audience. Where did this one start? What was the foundation? Well, it was Netflix. Like so many things that Wall Street and the media have wrong about this unstoppable evolution to television from linear to streaming, the example of Netflix led them down the primrose path. Analysts like always wrong Rich Greenfield, still giggling like a child with a crush over Netflix and its success and his building of a profile based on being the number one Netflix fanboy, saw Netflix growing its annual spend and then came up with a magical and unsupportable projection of how many households Netflix could expand into worldwide and leapt to this argument that as growth continued, spending would continue apace, and this would be good business. But Rich forgot that gravity exists. Like the Pied Piper, he led most people in the media, and like a lot of people on Wall Street, into believing this was an unavoidable fact of the streaming future. It's not. It is absolutely true that you can malnourish your streamer and its growth with it. Yes, clearly. But the mindset that keeps getting repeated like a mantra of blind acquiescence is more reminiscent of an NFT salesman than a successful business person. The idea of being first in the market and finding suckers who'll buy into your new hype is not new, and it's a legitimate business model to get rich quick. But there is no serious business argument, aside from it distracting Wall Street, for the floor and original content spending being $15 billion a year for a streamer in an ecosystem where the maturing Long-standing leader in the industry has yet to hit $30 billion in revenue in a year. It's stupid. And of course, there's this. Netflix itself is cutting back, not pushing forward on content spending. The increased focus on content production in and for other countries, other than the U.S., is actually a way of saving money, not spending more money. Everywhere in the world is a cheaper place to, produ- to create product than America. Everywhere. Netflix apparently spent under $3 million an hour for Squid Game. There's not a Hollywood-made series in the channel they've paid as little for, going all the way back to House of Cards. And it makes perfect sense. Netflix can produce or buy three or four series from other countries at the cost of one made-in-Hollywood show. That gives them three or four shots at a surprise hit like Squid Game as a homegrown show. Than a homegrown show. Let's push away, though, from Netflix for a minute. It's not really the point. I want to address that the, all this in the other myth segments that are coming up, but each of the major streaming players is bringing their own unique combination of legacy content and originals to the table. 
whether it's sport ri- sports rights or popular IP library or documentary content or whatever. Each is bundling, <laughs> that word, their own combination of content and taking it to the market with a different pitch. As we learn decade after decade after decade in good old school television, entire networks that are failing can be turned around almost overnight by two or three hit shows. Those shows don't have to be the most expensive. Sometimes they are. Friends and Seinfeld were not when they started, but ER was. But it still wasn't a show that cost them a billion dollars. You cannot buy your way out of failure, and you can't cheap your way out either. Yes, you can spend fortunes expanding your number at bats, number of times at bat, which does improve your odds of having a hit. Or you can go out and buy the best talent to try to improve your odds. But, you know, Shondaland, yeah. Ryan Murphy, not so much for Netflix. But a half dozen real hits a year will be able to drive any streamer. How you spend to get there is not a set reality. Next myth, acquisitions will fix what ails your platform. There have been two major acquisitions in this space. One, Disney buying Fox's assets. The other, Amazon buying MGM. Disney had mighty IP, but a very small library. Also, buying Fox gave them control of Hulu and Star and Hot Star, as well as the Fox TV production arm. Amazon is also library light, but their primary value play with MGM seems to be acquiring IP and a solid television production business. The third event is Warner Media now being spun off into a new business with Discovery. The purposes of this one seem to be a bet by AT&T that a new company can do better for the AT&T stockholder than continuing to operate Warner Media themselves. Yeah, and they're probably right. The idea of a major studio with a library and IP acquiring a studio with a similar amount of the same, but no specific strategic purpose, simply makes no sense. More of something that's not quite working is not an advantage. The constant focus of acquisition talk is on Viacom, Sony, and Lionsgate. Viacom is the only one with a broadcast network, but the general consensus is that broadcast networks were reduced to being brands in short order. None of the three have significant international assets, and none of them have fungible sports assets though CBS has rights to the NFL in its narrow context. Netflix is in a decade into their build-your-own-library effort, and now they're going to abandon that primary focus and spend nine figures on a studio that has its own quirks and issues and culture and content that hasn't even been able to maximize itself. Who is selling this idea? And more to the point, why is anybody buying it? Next myth, the world all looks the same. This mythology is really one of something that's unspoken more than it is spoken. People don't actually go around saying, the world looks the same. But they act as though everything is equal out there, and it's not. It doesn't just get discussed a lot, but the rest of the world is as complicated as it's been for decades in this media space. Yesterday's Disney Quarterly pointed this out quite clearly, showing that Disney Plus at Hotstar in India has a $1.03 average revenue per user a point that went overlooked in the lead of most stories about the overall subscriber count, 45.9 million of which came from India at that dollar three cents. Netflix, on the other hand, doesn't break India out. They've been struggling there, as we've been told. But the region, how Netflix actually breaks things out, that contains India is one of their growth areas, especially in the last quarter. APAC, or Asia Pacific, has only 33 million total subs. That includes Japan and South Korea. But they have the... The ARPU, the average revenue per unit or per, per user, at $9.26, which is quite decent. They've clearly made the choice that dragging down the ARPU isn't worth the million of new members they could get in India at a lower, lower, lower price. 
but this is not a discussion about how much, and this is not a discussion, or there is a discussion, excuse me, about how much of Disney's success there and Netflix's failure, kind of not failure, chosen or not, is based on cricket rights. And they're being negotiated right now. It's a different conversation. One of the clouds hanging over everybody but Netflix and Disney Plus, specifically the streaming channel, the one channel that is Disney Plus, is pushing out ad-based streaming, AVOD, to the entire world. Obviously, there are ads everywhere in the world already. But how universal can a Hulu-like package or a Pluto-like Pluto-like package or a virtual cable package like YouTube TV be? Not very. Now, my ignorance in the area of television advertising in other countries is profound. There are many experts out there. They will all be employed to have an opinion. Still, I will soldier on with this piece and, and make these comments. Imagine a worldwide Netflix hit like Lupin playing on AVOD as opposed to Netflix, uh, with not only all the translations and subtitles, but with 14 minutes of ads every hour from 150 different countries. This is a feat that is yet to occur in real life. American content bundlers, studios, networks, producers, have sold off their content to other countries and let them deal with individual markets as a rule. There are international bundlers who seek to buy up chunks of content, pay one price to the Americans, then sell it off country by country. Kind of like drug dealers at least as we see them on TV, buying pure and then cutting the product to make a profit. Hmm. But it's not just the ads that'll be different in pretty much every single country. If these companies want to become core channels in other countries, they'll need to program locally as well as worldwide. We are in a fantasy period right now in which other countries are being mined by Netflix and the rest with some success, and I'm thrilled by this. I want the whole world of content to be available to the entire world. But at some point, there's going to have to be a lot of regional, regionally spent money, regional shows that don't translate into other regions. Just as there have been American shows that have played well in some countries and not so well in other countries. At the point in which this reality smashes into the whole of streaming, streamers will have to start to make choices and not service certain countries fully. This is where Netflix has an advantage, actually, by not being as ambitious as, say, Disney. They're growing and maintaining a library of movies and TV shows with a bit of concession to regional programming but as in the United States and Canada, that market, they're not trying to be all things to all people in any regions. As with all things streaming, Netflix is out ahead in this area too. They've certainly surveyed every country in great depth, even though they're not selling advertising. Pretty much all of their subgrowth in the last year has been in Europe and the Middle East and Africa and APAC. The Europe, Middle East and Africa is a group, E-M-E-A, and APAC is Asia Pacific. That's two of their five groups, or their four groups, excuse me. That's a lot of territory. And without accusing Netflix of playing fast and loose with the numbers, as some have, the reporting from the company is not very instructive about where the strengths and weaknesses within those territories are. This is now looking like something like the expansion of movie theaters across the globe in the last 20 years. We went from a 50-50 split with the international box office in just 2001. By 2004, international had a 62-38 to edge. By 2010, it was 67-33 the first time international doubled domestic. By 2012, 70-30, and the peak so far was 73-27, almost a three-to-one advantage to the international in both 2017 and 2018. And that is where I think television is heading. And by television, I mean streaming. It was less complicated for theatrical. There were fewer partners, less governmental interference, less competition within the country, and building 10,000 new screens in a country was seen as heroic, adding to the tax revenues and the culture. American streaming companies are paving over existing roads, creating more resistance, and they come in with expectations of how they can build financially with not every local market 
being ready to support. It took many years for cable television to become available in 80% plus of America. City by city, negotiation by negotiation, this is what is facing the streamers now. But whereas cable was forced to consider, to be considerate of local considerations, including content choices like local channels, content rules, and cable access, streaming is the wild, wild west at this point. Anything goes. The problem is that works both ways. Next myth. Successful surviving streamers will play on the same ground. Again, people don't necessarily say it, but their analysis indicates that they believe this. I see it as making a choice so far between the big con or the small con. Now, that's not an insult. It sounds like an insult, but it's not really an insult. It's a choice. Disney wants to build a bigger footprint worldwide than the one which Netflix aspires to. They want sports. They want news. They want to be a leading family content provider. All the rest. Bigger risk. Bigger reward, potentially. We don't really know because Disney's still in its streaming, streaming toddler years. But the, this seems to be their aspiration. To do what Disney wants, they need all the revenue streams, at least parks and merchandising, and structures like ABC and ESPN, ABC News particularly, to make the risk potentially worth it. I don't think you're going to see Netflix dragged into the big con. They're a great small con company, not unlike HBO, which has been there for the last 30 years. $40 billion a year is nothing to sneeze at, and that's where I think they'll be maxing out until you know eventually time revalues money. They'll likely argue that $50 billion is really within their striking distance, but $40 billion, I think, is much more realistic. It's another third growth in that company. Disney is aiming at more like $100 billion a year, up from their current $60 billion a year in the content business. That's not including parks and merchandising. Where will Comcast and Viacom land as they expand across the globe? Both seem more likely to lean heavily into the AVOD play over the SVOD play, Subscription video with SVOD. What will that mean? Well, Viacom could, in theory, push Pluto into other countries almost as is. The concept makes sense. Pick up streaming rights to old sitcoms and hour-longs from every country. Add them to the mix of classic Americana with subtitles, which likely already, already exist, and you have an interesting smallish business, smallish in comparison to Netflix and Disney. How much is Paramount Plus? How much Paramount Plus content is involved? What brand do they use overseas? Could be different in different countries. A lot of options. Still very early in the game. And what about Warner Brothers Discovery? We all have a million questions about what, how they will operate. But the biggest question is what their level of ambition will be. And we don't know that yet. I've written before about how all of these companies can, see, can succeed by their own standards. The thing is, they must succeed by their own standards, standards, or they will die choking on the standards of others. Until tomorrow.